0: In Discovering Music today, we're the guests of the Norfolk and Norwich Music Club, and we're going to hear a performance of Shostakovich's eighth string quartet in C minor, performed by the BBC New Generation artist, the Royal Quartet. Before that, we're going to look at this work in detail, and particularly because this is not just one of Shostakovich's most popular works, but one of the most popular chamber works of the entire 20th century, certainly one of the very few chamber works written since the Second World War that could be described as in any way popular which is rather remarkable because it is an extremely dark piece of music. What is it about this, some would say, very gloomy and austere piece that makes it communicate so widely and to so many people? Well, Shostakovich did make several remarks about this quartet in particular. It was a work that he obviously felt had a very special significance for him. And one of the remarks that he made that was most interesting was a letter to his close friend Isaac Glickman. Shostakovich and Glickman corresponded for years, particularly during the worst years of the Stalinist regime. They even had a kind of code that they communicated to each other so that they could say things that the censors wouldn't notice. Some of these letters are brilliantly funny in the way that Shostakovich and Glickman managed to get round the censors. But the one that he wrote about the eighth quartet does suggest that he's actually making an effort to be funny about this quartet, maybe to stand back a bit from it, because it has such important personal significance for him. This is what he says. When I die, it's hardly likely that anyone will write a quartet dedicated to my memory, so I've decided to write it myself. One could write on the frontispiece dedicated to the author of this quartet. That's how the quartet opens. And in a way, that juxtaposition is really very typical of Shostakovich himself. That poker-faced, rather wicked sense of humor, and at the same time, that deep seriousness. Clearly, Shostakovich was very moved by his own eighth quartet, but at the same time, he can't resist sort of mocking himself, sometimes quite viciously for it. In the same letter, he writes... The pseudo-tragedy of this quartet is so great that, while composing it, my tears flowed as abundantly as urine after downing half a dozen beers. (laughs) I've tried playing it twice and have shed tears again, this time not because of the pseudo-tragedy, but because of my own wonder at its marvelous unity of form. Well, even at the end, that's got to be a Shostakovich joke. Yes, this is a marvellously constructed piece of music, but I don't think that it's the marvellous unity of form necessarily that impresses people about it. And certainly, if you were to take a passage like this from the last moment, I don't think that it's quite what you call pseudo-tragedy. Does that sound like pseudo-tragedy to you? Certainly it doesn't seem that anybody else thought so when the quartet first appeared in 1960. The cellist of the Russian Borodin quartet, Valentin Bialinsky, remembers the first time the quartet played it to Shostakovich at his home. This is what he says. When we'd finished playing, he left the room without saying a word and didn't come back. We quietly packed up our instruments and left. The next day, he rang me up in a great state of agitation. He said, I'm sorry, I just couldn't face anybody. I've no corrections to make. Just play it the way you did. So this is a work that clearly stirred up powerful feelings in Shostakovich. So what was it about this work that was of such special significance to him? Well, as I said, the quartet appeared in 1960. And the Soviet authorities, ever watchful for anything that didn't fit their idea of what Soviet art ought to be like, obviously felt that there were aspects of this quartet that needed explaining for a Soviet audience. They seemed on one aspect of the quartet that really seemed obviously to work for their purposes. It turned out that Shostakovich had written it during a visit to Dresden to play in the former East Germany. So obviously it seems Shostakovich was stirred by the sight of the devastating ruins, the war damage that was still very evident in Dresden in the 1960s and which fortunately for Soviet purposes hadn't been caused by the Red Army. So it was put about that Shostakovich had written the quartet in response to this awful spectacle, and the quartet appeared in print with a dedication, quotes, to the victims of war and fascism. Well, that would explain the elegiac tone, and particularly the violence in the middle of the quartet. In the fourth movement one writer described what he called machine gun fire in the lower strings the repeated figures there and in the quiet held sustained drone by the first violin he was suggesting that this might be the sound of a distant drone of an airplane engine a bomber in the distance perhaps this was the kind of interpretation that was put on the quartet when it first appeared Well, the explanation that this was a war quartet, a response to the horrors of the Second World War, and an elegy for the victims of Hitler's fascism, held good for some years after the quartet first appeared, certainly until after Shostakovich's death in 1975. And then came a big change. I wonder if some of you remember that a book appeared in the West in 1979 called Testimony, which claimed to be Shostakovich's own memoirs as dictated to and edited by a Russian musicologist called Solomon Volkov. Now, there's still a lot of controversy about how true or how much truth there might be in testimony, but it certainly put scores of cats among many pigeons, and particularly with remarks like this about the Eighth Quartet, which is what the words that are put into Shostakovich's mouth here and indeed sound quite authentic to me. When I wrote the Eighth Quartet, it was assigned to the Department of Exposing Fascism. Well, you'd have to be blind to think that, because everything in the quartet is as clear as an a primer. I quote my own opera, Lady Macbeth, the First and Fifth Symphonies. What does fascism have to do with these? The Eighth is an autobiographical quartet, and it quotes from a song known to all Russians, exhausted by the hardships of prison. exhausted by the hardships of prison. So is Shostakovich telling us at this point that the Soviet Union, for him, was a kind of prison, that he was its prisoner? There are good reasons for thinking that he thought so particularly in 1960, which is when he wrote the Eighth Quartet, especially because recently, after years of holding out, Shostakovich had finally given in to sustained pressure from the Khrushchev regime and joined the Communist Party it seems pretty clear from what he said to many people at the time that he regarded this as a moral collapse on his own part, that he felt deeply ashamed of himself for giving into this pressure, and he lacerated himself for it. According to the musicologist Lev Lebedinsky, this pushed Shostakovich to a kind of crisis resolution, and the eighth quartet was the absolute direct expression of this. This is what Lev Levodinsky says. The composer dedicated the quartet to disguise his intentions, although, as he considered himself a victim of a fascist regime, that dedication to the victims of war and fascism was apt. In fact, he intended it as a summation of everything that he'd written before. It was his farewell to life. He associated joining the party with a moral as well as a physical death. On the day of his return from the trip to Dresden, where he completed the quartet, he purchased a large number of sleeping pills— He played the quartet to me on the piano and told me with tears in his eyes that this was to be his last work. He hinted at his intention to commit suicide. Perhaps subconsciously he hoped that I would save him. Anyway, I managed to remove the pills from his jacket pocket and gave them to his son, Maxim, explaining to him the true meaning of the quartet. I pleaded with Maxim never to let his father out of his sight. During the next few days I spent as much time as possible with Shostakovich until I felt that the danger of suicide has passed." Well obviously it seems that the watchfulness did work because Shostakovich did live for another 15 years and managed to write another seven quartets. So it seems possible that the eighth quartet was a suicide note that turned out in the end not to be a suicide note at all or a musical autobiography, or a summation of his lime's work, or perhaps a threnody for the victims of fascism in the larger sense, not just Hitler's fascism, but Stalin's fascism. Or maybe in some way it's a combination of all of these. Somehow it all seems relevant when you come to look at this music, but how much does it actually explain the sounds we're going to hear in today's program? Should we look for the music to explain itself? After all, this piece moved people, clearly moved many people, long before this story about it being a possible farewell to life, a suicide note was known. So let's have a look in detail at what Shostakovich does in this quartet, and maybe that will help us, particularly when it comes to those self-quotations that there are in his work. The Eighth Quartet starts not so much with a quotation, it's more a signature. It's almost as though Shostakovich has written his initials on the quartet. In the German musical alphabet, those four notes, D, E-flat, C, and B, are rather conveniently D-S-C-H, D-SH, which are Shostakovich's initials in Russian. So that's his way of spelling his own name. And just in case there was any doubt about the fact that he meant that to be his own signature, there's a fascinating and strange little song he wrote near the end of his life with the marvelous title, Preface to the Complete Edition of My Works and Other Brief Recollections. (laughs) And there at one point he sings his own name to that very figure, Dmitry Shostakovich. So it's very clear that he did regard it as his own Piece. So this work, this Farewell to Life, this autobiographical work, starts with the cello spelling out his own name. Then very shortly afterwards, this Shostakovich figure introduces something else. figure at the end there that the leader played first with the second violin and then with the viola is taken directly from the beginning of Shostakovich's which is first symphony, which he wrote when he was just 18. In fact, it's said that he wrote it as a graduation exercise and well, it not only got him a good degree, it also brought him instant international fame and since then it's been one of the most widely played of all 20th century symphonies. But here it's fascinating the way it's included as a kind of musical memory and introduced by that figure DSCH in fact all the way through this quartet these quotations are each one of them introduced by that DSCH figure you can hear it very clearly it's as though Shostakovich is actually saying now listen to this now listen to this and little later on there's uh, another detail which is introduced in exactly the same way by the DSCH figure like this So what's that violin tune at the end? Because the appearance of D-S-C-H before it makes it very clear that Shostakovich is pointing to it. He's saying there's some particular significance here. Well, several musicologists have puzzled over what that might be. It's not a quotation from Shostakovich's own work, or if it is, it may be from one of his youthful works that haven't survived. But it could be something else, because one thing he mentions in that letter to his friend Isaac Glickman is that there's a hint, he says, not a quotation, but just a hint of Tchaikovsky's famous Pathétique Symphony, of the big theme, the love theme, from Tchaikovsky's Pathétique Symphony. Well, I wonder if he's possibly parodying the Tchaikovsky. If you hear them played together, they start on the same note, and it's almost as though the Shostakovich is mimicking that kind of lamenting, falling figure in the Tchaikovsky. But then DSCH returns again. Once again, it seems to indicate another quotation. Or again, this is sort of halfway between a quotation, a direct quotation, and a hint. Now, that sounds rather like a clever conflation of two themes from Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, which in testimony he also mentions as being quoted in this work. That falling figure, da-da-da-da, sounds like the symphony's first theme, whereas that dum-dum-dum-da-da-da is the accompanying figure from the second theme. So again, it's possible that he's looking back at this work slightly obliquely here, but more explicitly. But the quotations get much more literal and much more easy to identify in the next movement, which is a complete contrast to this very slow, tragic first movement. This is a real explosion right from the start. <laughs> As this music builds up in intensity then you get that DSCH figure again you'll hear it very clearly only this time it gets much faster and you hear it in imitation with itself and it builds up and then suddenly there's an explosion of something completely new a magnificent new tune <laughs> Actually, that's not really new, it's another self-quotation, this time from Shostakovich's second piano trio. It sounds rather like Russian-Jewish music, and in fact, it seems that Shostakovich agreed with that because in a similar passage in Testimony, he says this about that theme and about Jewish music and its significance for him. I think if we speak of musical impressions that Jewish folk music has made a most powerful impression on me. I never tire of delighting in it. It's multifaceted. It can appear to be happy when it is tragic. It is almost always laughter through tears. It can appear to be happy when it's actually tragic. That in a way was Shostakovich's own predicament for so much of his career under Stalinism. This is a time when composers were actually hauled to account if they wrote more pieces in the minor key than in the major, just in case they were giving the impression that life in the Soviet Union might be more gloomy than pleasant. And um, even the whole question of whether or not it was acceptable to express tragedy was something that was considered very dangerous at one period under Stalinist Russia, the kind of thing for which some artists actually, in inverted commas, disappeared. And Shostakovich lived a lot of his life with the threat of such a disappearance happening to him, as a great many of his friends make very clear. But that build-up in this movement to the Jewish theme happens twice. And then suddenly it's savagely cut off and we hear DSCH again, only this time it's turned into a weird little waltz tune. We'll was fascinated to discover the other day that that's a rare example in the manuscript of Shostakovich actually crossing something out and rewriting it apparently he did that very very rarely originally his intention was to quote the famous Saint-Saëns Danse Macabre which would have been very effective in that context but he wanted to stamp his own initials even on this music here what's interesting also is that as before in the other two movements the appearance of DSCH introduces yet another self-quotation this time from the first cello concerto There is a possible thread that connects all the quotations that we've heard so far from Shostakovich's own work and interestingly connects them with all the other quotations that we're going to hear as well. Because all the works of his own Shostakovich does refer to in this quartet were all great successes at their first performances. Well, that's a very good reason for a composer to look over his greatest successes and remind himself perhaps that he had them. But it doesn't prepare us in this case in the eighth quartet for the brutal transformation that happens at the beginning of the fourth movement. you remember now that cello concerto theme. I'll just ask the quartet to play it again. That's what Chostakovich makes the basis for that machine gun fire and aircraft drone sound that we heard earlier on in the program. It's his own music that he's transformed into a completely different character. Why does Shostakovich treat his own themes so brutally in this context? Well, perhaps he's talking about or trying to tell us something about what it felt like to have his own work brutalized and used for purposes that he never intended in his years in the Soviet Union. Look what they've done to my music, it could be that he's saying, they've made me into a kind of Cold War warrior. Some of you may remember when Shostakovich was indeed brought over in the older days of the Soviet Union as a kind of cultural exhibit to show the West what wonderful things had been achieved in communist Russia. It seems that from what we gather, he truly loathed having to do this, and particularly loathed having his music used for such political reasons. But he had to endure it, he had to grin and bear it, And maybe that passage in the quartet is an example of him saying, is this what it really feels like from the inside? You never know with Shostakovich, there are always so many ways of looking at it. But it does seem that at this point he's leading us in something like that direction. And fascinating enough, if you consider how that music then yields to, leads to that quotation we heard again near the beginning of the program, that folk song, Exhausted by the Hardships of Prison, that he should follow his own brutalization of his own theme by this very explicit reference to a song, that most Russians would know, but it does seem that he's trying to tell us something at this point. This is how it works in context. And now comes another self-quotation, this time not introduced by DSCH, interestingly enough. The only time that happens in the quartet. But it is quite unmistakable. And it's possibly the most poignant, the saddest of all the quotations in this quartet, even though it's actually in the major key, the bright key of F-sharp major. This is a reference to a melodic line from Shostakovich's opera Lady Macbeth of the Mtsensk district. Well, there are several reasons why Shostakovich could have decided to choose this tune at this point in his eighth quartet. For one thing, the opera Lady Macbeth of Mtsensk was dedicated, possibly ironically, to his new wife Nina in 1932 a very powerful woman, and Shostakovich's relationship with her was not unfraught, it seems, but she was a very big moral support to him during the worst years of the Stalinist persecution. And her death, so just a few years before the Eighth Quartet was written, was a huge blow to Shostakovich, and it took him some time to recover from it. But another reason why he might be referring to Lady Macbeth at this point is because it was the center of perhaps the most painful controversy of his entire career. It was first performed in 1932, and was a huge success, it ran almost continuously for two years, which is remarkable for any modern opera. It was hailed as a truly magnificent Soviet achievement. And then suddenly, for reasons at the time which were completely mysterious, this blistering condemnation appeared of it in the government newspaper Pravda, which almost certainly was written by Stalin himself. It seems that Stalin, after some years, decided he was going to go and see what all the fuss was about with this new opera, went along, and somebody, rather ill-advisedly, put him in the box next to the off-stage brass. Before, or it's quite possible that, being prudish, he took exception to the explicit love scenes on the stage. But whatever the case, he hated it, and this editorial appeared. The opera was immediately withdrawn and Shostakovich was in danger of his life for some time. But there's another possible reason why Shostakovich might be referring to this piece here, and it's partly indicated in the way that the cello lingers over the first phrase, da da da, at the end. In the opera, this is Lady Macbeth, Katerina, singing to her lover, Sergei, or the Russian diminutive is Seryosha. And not only might he be thinking of the opera at this point, but also of the cellist Sergei or Seriosha Shirinsky of the Beethoven quartet, the Russian quartet who gave the first performances of most of Shostakovich's quartets. And when Shostakovich wrote a quartet, number 14, especially dedicated to Sergei Shirinsky, he quotes that passage again, but in such a way that only Shirinsky, as the player, can hear it because it's surrounded by other things. So it's a little private joke. He's saying to him, this is there just for you. You know what this means. So there's three different ways in which that we can approach that quote or explain why it's there in that music. And it's a kind of warning, I think, because it's very easy to be categorical with Shostakovich and say, well, this is clearly what he means at this point. But often with Shostakovich, there's an irony somewhere. There's someone drawing back, just as in that letter at the beginning, clearly deeply moved by his own quartet. He still has to make a joke at his own expense about being moved from it. It's almost as though he has to distance himself from himself at the same time. Well, this slow movement leads, remarkably, to another slow movement. Shostakovich was never afraid of piling up slow movements. In fact, those of you who know his last quartet, number 15, will know that he's actually in six adagios, all in E-flat minor. So you can imagine what a jolly evening that is. <laughs> But this last movement contains absolutely no quotations. It's the only one of the five movements that doesn't have a quotation from Shostakovich's own work, or it seems from anywhere else. The only reference that we have here is that musical signature, DSCH. It's almost as though Shostakovich is now leaving his own theme, his own signature, to ruminate on its own, just to allow it to take flight or reach its climax on its own, because... It has to be said that it feels as though this is the kind of the music that DSCH has been straining towards all the way through the quartet. When we hear the complete work, I think that'll be even clearer. And it builds to a magnificent and deeply moving climax. So is this Shostakovich's farewell to life? Or could it be that in setting down these musical memories, working them out artistically, he found the strength to keep going? It could be the means by which he saved his life, There are times in his life when he said that it was the experience of writing music that gave him courage to continue and to carry on testifying to what he saw as the evil around him and clinging at least to some vestige of hope in the face of the tyranny of Soviet Russia. And as we hear these quotations, in a way it's up to you what you make of them. I've indicated some of the reasons why they may have been there, but after all, this is a piece of music. It isn't a talk, it isn't a lecture, it isn't a novel, it isn't even a poem. In a way, what we hear when we listen to a piece of music and what we, how we interpret it, it is up to us, as Shostakovich himself, I'm sure, very well understood. You can judge for yourself in just a few minutes when we hear the complete performance of the string quartet number 8 in C minor. But before that, do we have anybody who would like to ask a question? I think we have a question here on the front row.
1: I believe I'm right in saying that the, um, a lot of the quartets have rather fewer tempo and dynamic markings than one would normally expect, and this was due to the fact that he wrote most of the quartets for the Beethoven Quartet, and as they got used to his music, he relied on them to put in their own dynamic markings.
0: Yes, Shostakovich was a very practical musician, and he was not the kind of composer who felt that everything had to be defined on paper before work was performed. He was a performer himself, a rather good pianist, so he knew that there were things that would happen when you play a work that you couldn't bargain for when you wrote it. And through that long collaboration with the Beethoven Cortez, as you mentioned, also with the conductor Yevgeny Mravinsky, who gave the first performances of several of Shostakovich's symphonies, Shostakovich evolved the kind of relationship where they get this feedback, even in the rehearsal stage. I was very lucky when I went to Russia the last time to meet Mravinsky's widow and to see the pen and ink copy scores that he'd given the first performances of several Shostakovich's symphonies from. That was pretty amazing in itself. I remember the last page of the Fifth Symphony looked as if he'd been left out in the rain. The ink had run. And I I said to Madame Ravinsky, I said, what's this? She said, tears. (laughs) And she meant it. Ravinsky was moved to tears, it seems. He actually wept onto the score, and there it was in front of me, a moment of history. But it was fascinating looking at those scores to see the comments in pencil, in biro, that Mravinsky and Shostakovich had written to each other on the scores. It was like a kind of working document. And there were really important musical details added in, obviously after they got well into the rehearsal stage, sometimes quite significant ones. So yes, I think Shostakovich, when he had a relationship with performers, he he really trusted them and he knew that there would be something they could bring to his work that he hadn't maybe thought of. It's a kind of humility that you don't always expect from artistic creators, isn't it? Anybody else anything they'd like to ask?
1: I wondered why his seemed to have so much antagonism towards Stalin and his regime. Why he remained there in Russia? Was it because he had some terrific patriotism for his country? Why did he not leave?
0: That's a hugely complicated question, and I don't think there's ever... A final answer one can get to that, but there is no question that Shostakovich really did consider himself, first and foremost, a Russian artist, a Russian artist with a particular mission to the Russian people. He felt glad when his music was understood in other countries, but he always felt that there was something that he was trying to say, which was specifically for his own country and for the people who had endured what they had endured under Stalin. That whole relationship, though, of Shostakovich and Stalin is a fascinating one in another dimension because... Stalin was an expert at playing mind games with people. He would sort of bring you to the brink and then suddenly turn in your favor again. As he did several times with Shostakovich, there are extraordinary stories of him suddenly ringing up at two o'clock in the morning and saying, hmm, we ought to be giving you work. Why aren't we giving you work? And Shostakovich saying, well, I'm banned. And uh, Stalin saying, who's banned you? You tell me who they are, I'll punish them. Um, extraordinary stories like this, you know. But there is no doubt that Shostakovich saw himself as in many ways an inheritor to Composers like Mazorsky, who in his great 19th century opera, Boris Godunov, had presented a, definitely a political vision of a, a position of how much Russia suffered and yet at the same time how the people, the Russian people, this constantly important symbol in Russian art, that they might find within themselves some spiritual resource to survive it and go on to something better. And there's no, there's no doubt that Shostakovich was thrilled when someone compared him to a character in Boris Godunov, who is the monk, the historian who sits in his cell, writing down, observing everything that's going on and chronicling it for times to come. And Shostakovich quotes the theme associated with the monk in his own works sometimes, as though it's a kind of another way of saying, look, this is what I'm doing. I've got to stay here because I've got to be with my people and record what's happening for posterity. And I remember meeting a little while ago a 93-year-old man, a Russian critic, called Alexander Gossumpud. When I mentioned the first performance of Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, he suddenly became a different man, very animated. And he said, you've no idea what it was like. You're living in hell, and all around you is music, cinema, literature, telling you that this is heaven, this is the socialist utopia, and you think, am I going mad? And suddenly you hear music like this that says, no, you're not going mad. It really is the way you think it is. And he said that was indescribable, an indescribable relief for him and many other people. It may seem extraordinary to think that music like what we've just heard could be comforting for people in distress, but there are many, many Russians who will testify that that music, saying the unsayable, gave them strength in a way that music that might have been more optimistic to us might not have done. So now it's time to hear the complete performance of this quartet dedicated by Shostakovich, apparently to his own memory. We're to hear it performed by the members of the Royal Quartet, Isabella Shalajimak, Elvira Przybołowska, Marek Czek and Michał Peppel.